Chapter Fifteen, Part Two of Mounted Police Life in Canada. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mounted Police Life in Canada by Captain Burton Dean. Chapter Fifteen, Part Two: Wholesale Cattle Smuggling. On May twenty-fifth, our herd of American cattle numbered about seven hundred and fifty head. Taylor came to our camp for dinner that day, and after looking through the seized stock, told Bournette that there was not a four-year-old steer in their herd. This was an indication of what his line of argument was likely to be, and in the course of a thirty-mile ride with George Lane that morning, how a dispute as to age between our experts and the Spencer's representative could be conclusively settled. He said the only way would be to have a veterinary surgeon on the spot. As a last resource, an animal in dispute could always be thrown aside and its mouth could be examined, and a disinterested veterinary surgeon would be the best person to examine the teeth. He would be able to tell to a certainty. When Lane left us, as he did that afternoon for home, he carried with him from me a letter to the commanding officer at Calgary, asking him to send his veterinary officer to join our camp, and he did so. The significance of the two riders reported by George Lane appeared about this time. It was proposed to move the camp in a northeasterly direction for about eight miles, and Voice was sent to look over the ground. The northeast corner of the range was black with cattle when we first began our work, but Voice came back and reported now that they had been driven off. He found a trail leading southwest, showing tracks of a large band of cattle and of galloping horses, which had been used in herding them off the hills into the coulees. By the sign of the tracks, this had been done within about thirty-six hours. We also found deep-cut wheel marks of a wagon going in the same direction. This was no more than we had expected, and we were in no way disconcerted. At the worst, it could only mean that we might have to prolong our stay and go over the range again. There was no hope of the cattle being able to get away from us, as, if they went into Montana, the customs officers there would seize them, so we did not worry. Our routine from day to day was pretty much the same. Breakfast at about 4.15 a.m. or 4.30 a.m., ride all the forenoon, dinner at noon, ride all the afternoon, supper at six or thereabouts. Sometimes we had to move camp every day. Sometimes it would be a fixture for two or three days, according to how we found the cattle. We had to drive with us our seized herd, wherein were innumerable calves. They had to be moved slowly, and the number of cattle, of course, increased from day to day. Matters by this time reached such a stage that some definite pronouncement had to be made as to the plan upon which the seizure was to be conducted. My colleague and I had never been able to agree upon this point. He had spent most of his life in the maritime provinces, seizing bottles of illicit rum from fishing smacks and the like, and knew as much about cattle as a cow knew about side pockets. He was not even willing to learn. He argued that the Spencers had paid duty on 1,230 head of stock, and that we should seize all over that number of American brands that we could find. This proposition was too childish to waste time in discussing, and I told him so. 
For want of something better to say, he finally observed that his deportment was in charge of the operations, and that what he, as representative of the customs, said was final. Considering that he was as useless as a fifth wheel to a coach, this was calculated to make a plain man mad, and I am free to confess that it made me as mad as a wet hen. I stumped out of the tent, leaving behind me as a Parthian shot. You'll find that I settle this question, irrespective of your department's representative. I called to my clerk to bring writing pad and pencil, and together we retired to a convenient spot, where he sat on the prairie and wrote, and I walked about and dictated. The following is a verbatim copy of what he wrote. Memorandum of Details for Settlement with Spencer Brother and Company by Superintendent Dean. On April 25, 1900, they imported 527 calves. Of these, 224 were entered at Coots as being under six months old. The remaining 303 were entered on the same date at the same place as being over six and under 12 months. As a yearling is not properly so called until he has become 12 months old, as a two-year-old is not properly so called until he is 24 months old, and as a three-year-old is not properly so called until he has completed 36 months of age, it will be seen that none of the 527 calves was 36 months old on April 25, 1902. By May 25, 1902, one month later, it might be plausibly claimed that some of them had become three-year-olds. A liberal method, therefore, of estimating the possible number may be arrived at in the case of the 303 calves which were entered as being over six and under 12 months on April 25, 1900. In the first place, it may be fairly presumed that the 303 calves were half steers and half heifers. We may thus consider them to have been 152 heifers and 151 steers, plus odoms. As the age of the calves were spread over a period of six months, it is reasonable to divide the number of heifers and steers by six, and thus to assume that 27 heifers and 26 steers had, on May 25, 1902, entered the category of three-year-old animals. The entry at Coots, giving the ages of these animals, as shown by the customs records, will, I presume, be held to mean exactly what it expresses, neither more nor less. It is important that this should be definitely understood, as, in conversation with Mr. Bourdonot the other day, Mr. Taylor prepared the way for a change of front by saying that a mistake had been made in the entry at Coots. He appeared to claim that a mistake had been made in the number of calves entered, but he also mentioned, quite incidentally, that some of the calves were fourteen months old. I called Mr. Bourdonot's attention to this remark afterwards. Upon this premise, namely that the entry at Coots was correct and was made in good faith, I am, in the opinion of competent stockmen, making a liberal computation when I allow one-sixth part of the 303 calves to be classed as three-year-old steers and heifers on May 25, 1902. This presupposes no casualties to have happened to any of them. These animals are said to have been branded double rollock and J7 on the left side. I desire to draw particular attention to these 26 steers qualifying as three-year-old animals, because it will account for the only three-year-old steers of American brands 
lawfully in possession of Spencer Brothers and Company in Canada. On December 7, 1900, the firm imported and paid duty on a 189 cows and 80 heifers. The calves, 268, imported on that occasion, are too young to require attention. The brands on these animals were entered as Double Rolock, J7, and Quarter Circle F. On April 20, 1901, the firm paid duty on 82 cows and 20 heifers, described as being then about two years old. The brand on this importation was entered as Double Rolock on the left side. The total number then of cows and heifers three years old and upwards, which Spencer Brothers and Company have lawfully in their possession on May 25, 1902, equals 189 plus 80 plus 82 plus 20 plus 27, all of which amount to 398. A certain proportion of female stock is always unprolific, being called dry stock. Competent stockmen tell me that estimating the proportion of dry stock at 30% is in reality an underestimate, so that if it be conceded that Spencer and Company should receive a calf within each of the 398 cows to which they are entitled, they cannot complain of illiberality. This very number, 398, should be subject to deduction from losses, etc., but the fact that none is claimed by the government again bespeaks liberality. In the number of cattle which had been rounded up, there are a number of steers of three, four, five years old and upwards. These animals all bear American brands, have not been entered at customs, and are thus valuable and seizable property. I may here again say the allowance of the 26 just-turned three-year-old steers, as previously mentioned, is a liberal concession to the firm of Spencer's. Following the same rule as is suggested for the steers, all cows bearing American brands of three years old and upwards, whether with calves or not, are liable to seizure and confiscation, and these and the steers will constitute the most valuable part of the seizure. There is no difficulty whatever in conducting the seizure upon these lines. Competent cattlemen are as well able to tell the age of a two-, three-, or four-year-old animal, etc., as they are to read the lines of a book. Mr. Lane had provided in the personnel of his roundup an expert in this matter, and in the event of any dispute arising as to an animal's age, we have, upon Mr. Lane's advice, fortified ourselves with professional veterinary opinion in the person of Staff Sergeant Hobbs. The dictum, therefore, of Mr. Henry, the expert, of Mr. Playfair, captain of the round-up, and of Staff Sergeant Hobbs, may be held as to be unassailable wherever they are agreed upon a point of age. And such opinion need not fear be controverted in a court of law. Spencer Brothers and Company may plausibly plead that the American-branded steers, etc., now on their range here have strayed across the boundary line and joined their cattle here without their knowledge. Against that there are two circumstances to be considered. First, Arthur Strong told me on May 24th last, in connection with the entry of 527 calves at Writing on Stone on April 25th, 1900, when I told him that I held a warrant for his arrest for aiding and abetting and smuggling cattle into Canada, as per affidavit of John Rice, that he had not smuggled any cattle as charged, that on the occasion in question he had, in accordance with his orders, driven 400 head of cattle 
Over and above the calves aforesaid, as far as the boundary line, and left them there. He protested that he did not know whether they came into Canada or not. Secondly, we know from Mr. Stock Inspector Bray's report that on May 2nd last, Spencer Brothers shipped four beef cattle branded double rowlock on the left side, that is, the American brand. It remained for the firm to show whether these animals were ever duly entered at customs. The two circumstances are at least suspicious. I have thought it advisable to record for the information of the department at Ottawa, and possibly for future reference in the event of the matter ever finding its way into a court of law, exactly what my views and line of reasoning are while we are on the spot. To pursue this matter to its logical conclusion, there is, in my opinion, but one course open to us. We have now over 1,400 head of cattle. After the claims of Spencer Brothers and Company have been satisfied, as aforesaid, it will be found that in the balance remaining there will still be a considerable number of steers and cows of three years of age and upwards, and these should be seized, as Spencer Brothers and Company cannot have them lawfully in their possession, and the onus of proving that they are so rests with them. Badwater Lake, Alberta, May 31, 1902 as soon as a fair copy had been made, I took it to Baronot and said, That is an outline of the basis of settlement. If you agree with it, you should sign it. If you do not agree with it, you would do well to detail your objections in writing. He studied it for a while and then said, It's all right. So we had no further dispute. Baronot left on June 3rd for Coots, from whence he sent to his department at Ottawa a long telegram which he had concocted. The reply read as follows. Commissioner instructs you to demand deposit of duty paid, value for stock seized, such deposit not exceeding $10,000. Forfeited stock may be sold by private sale, if you deem this advisable, in case deposit not paid. The $10,000 limit was absurdly inadequate and rendered it useless for us to waste time and money by going again over the range in pursuit of the cattle that had been driven out of our way. So we turned over to Mr. Taylor and his men. Number one, 398 cows, three-year-olds and upwards, with a calf to each cow. Two, 26 steers which had just attained the age of three years. Taylor, as expected, kicked like a steer about everything. I explained to him our method of settling the dispute and quoted from my record the maximum number of cows which he was entitled to receive, according to his own sworn customs entries. He retorted that he had never heard of such a thing as holding a man to months in the ages of cattle. Buttonot chipped in then, I told you in March, Mr. Taylor, that we would hold you to your entries, and that is what we are doing. We were quite firm, so finally he said he was satisfied with the cows and steers, and took them over as being three years and upwards. Next, we handed over to him some 348 head of less than three-year-old animals, which we did not want. This brought us down to the herd that we intended to seize, all three-year-olds and upwards. We asked Taylor if he had any objection to offer in respect to these, and he and his men started in and recklessly cut out about 150 head, which he claimed were two-year-old animals. We sat round and looked on, and in some cases laughed. Several of the cows were followed by two calves, a yearling and a calf, 
and he thought it good business to take the yearlings away from their mothers, as if we were such fools as not to see through this absurdity. One amusing incident happened. Taylor and our man Playfair disagreed about a steer. Playfair said, Look here, Taylor, I've just got fifty dollars here. You say that steer is not three years old, and I say it is. I will bet you fifty dollars on it, and if you will bet, I will take the money over to the captain there, and he shall hold it while we throw the animal, and let the vet examine its mouth. Taylor was not such a fool as to give away his money in that fashion, and declined the offer. Playfair then refused to take his objections seriously. After Taylor and his men had finished their afternoon's fun, we instructed our experts to cut back into the seized herd all of the 150 animals that they would positively swear to as being three-year-olds. They cut back all but 19 head. They said there might be doubt as to these 19, and they would not be prepared to swear without a mouth examination. This Taylor was particularly anxious to avoid. He was too good a cattleman not to know that he was wrong, and a mouth examination not only would have discredited him in the eyes of his own men, but would have subjected him to derision all over the range and in the stockman's world. It was no part of our business to compel an examination. In the first place, the Customs Act throws upon the importer the onus of proof. Taylor was the importer, and the proof lay with him. In the second place, we were dealing with Spencer's cattle. If there was any throwing to be done, it had to be done by the Spencer's men. We should never have heard the last of it if an animal had been thrown by our men and a leg had been accidentally broken, perhaps, as was always possible. It was better policy for us to concede the nineteen head, which we did. We then asked Taylor if he was satisfied that the herd under seizure consisted of cattle three years old and upwards. He replied, to the best of my judgment. We then proceeded to count the seized herd and found 587 head. Taylor was nervous and lost the count. Voice gave it to him once again, but he lost it again and was content to accept our figures. The more so as we had spent ten hours in the saddle, chewing the rag, over this very simple proposition. Next morning, the round-up left us, as its work was done, and well done, too. They had worked with us, and for us, loyally and well, and our personal relations were all that could be desired. Bourinot and his teamster left at the same time, heading for the railway. He had an engagement to meet Taylor at Medicine Hat, there to receive the required deposit, and it was my duty to stay with the herd, with voice, and the few men that I had as herders, until I should hear from Bourinot. The nights of the 14th, 15th, and 16th June were bitterly cold, with driving rainstorms at frequent intervals during the day. The cattle were restless and hard to hold, and I was mighty glad when word came about 3 p.m. on the 17th that the deposit was made and that the cattle might be released. I sent for Taylor to come and take them over, and we counted them out to him. 198 steers worth 42.50 each, 164 cows with calves worth $35 each, 225 dry cows worth $28 each. The total value was over $20,000, the prices quoted were the market prices of the day, and we knew of a man who was prepared to buy the cattle at those prices if there had been any hitch with the deposit.
On June 18, we broke up our camp and started for the Mounted Police Detachment at Writing on Stone, about 40 miles distant. And it was about time, for our grub had run out, the rains had spoilt most of the little flour we had left, and we had but a scanty breakfast that morning. Having to make a detour on business, I had a ride of 53 miles before I got my next meal, and that was not till half-past three in the afternoon. We had all become a little tired of the job. The work had been very tiresome and monotonous during the last few days. We had driven an ever-increasing number of cattle, which finally amounted to about 1,400 head, for about 70 miles, and had not lost even one calf. My horses had carried me for over 900 miles between May 14th and June 19th, which was as much as I dared to take out of them, considering that one was 22 years of age. Dandy by name, Dandy by nature and the other turned out to have a poor constitution. Old Dandy delighted in cutting a refractory steer out of a bunch. He would cock his ears and watch the brute, and turn like a flash at the slightest touch of a rein, laid flat on his neck. That is the cowboy fashion, and I never insulted the old chap's mouth by pretending to know he had a bit in it. He and I, on one of the closing days of the round-up, had finally cut out a steer that had given us a lot of trouble. Willard Humphreys, an American cowboy, one of Spencer's men, had been looking on from the outside of the circle, and when I pulled up alongside of him, he said, The old horse did that well, Captain, but I don't like to see him do it. Why not? I queried. Oh, because he's too old, he shouldn't have to do that in his old age. I believe you're right, said I. I'll never do it again, and I never did. For my share in this seizure, I was preemptorily ordered to be transferred from Lethbridge to Maple Creek. I had been in Lethbridge for fourteen years, so there was, as the Western expression goes, no kick coming to me. I simply packed up and went, and, by the irony of fate, stumbled upon the other instances of graft which I have previously mentioned. I carried with me the grim satisfaction of knowing that I had worked up a case in which there was not a single flaw, and which could not fail to be upheld by every tribunal in the Dominion. In spite of all the information at their disposal, the Customs Department became weak-kneed. How this malady was induced may be better imagined than described, and returned to the Spencers, or their representatives, four thousand of the ten-thousand-dollar deposit, thus defrauding the revenue of the round sum of $14,000, besides the further unknown quantity represented by the hundreds of smuggled cattle which we had not been permitted to round up. The Spencers, then, had the audacity to bring a suit against the government for the $6,000 which the customs held. This action was tried in the Exchequer Court at Medicine Hat on December 2, 1904. They had filed in the court a perfect avalanche of affidavits, in which they denied pretty nearly everything that had been reported against them. One instance will serve to show the class of impotent falsehood that they generated, for the falsity of every document was exposed at the hearing. One of the affidavits purported to have been made by Art Strong, wherein he flatly contradicted the story that I had told about meeting him near the camp, and said that such a conversation never took place. In the witness box, under cross-examination, 
strong freely and unequivocally admitted that he had met me and had told me about his connection with the 900 cattle in April 1900. So open and ingenious was his admission that the judge remarked, Ah, these affidavits have been prepared. One of our witnesses, Peter Enos, who had helped Sam Spencer to smuggle some 800 cattle into Canada at Pendant d'Oreille in October 1900, and was coming from Montana to tell his story under oath, swore in the witness box that while he was on his way, the then mayor of Great Falls, a bosom friend of the Spencers, had offered him $250 not to come to court. When that inducement failed, he was plied with liquor and made so helplessly drunk that it was quite a job to sober him up in time to give evidence. However, we managed it, and he gave good evidence too. The result of the trial was a foregone conclusion. Mr. Justice Burbage said that he could give the suppliants no relief. He remarked that the amount sued for represented only a small proportion of the value of the cattle seized, and this was an indication of the trend of his thoughts. The disappointed suppliants appealed from the decision of the Exchequer Court to the Supreme Court of Canada, which affirmed the judgment of the court below, and that settled the matter. Some years ago I cut out a fragment of some newspaper the name of which I do not know, the following poem, with which, with apologies to the author, it seems to me I may fitly close my narrative of this episode. It was a unique experience for a police officer, and I would not have missed it for the world. The Cowboy's Prayer The following poem, written under the above caption, signed Charles B. Clark, Jr., contains a whole sermon whose broadness might be commended to some clerical teachers. O oh Lord, I've never lived where churches grow. I love creation better as it stood. That day you finished it so long ago, and looked upon your work and called it good. I know that others find you in the light that's sifted down through tinted window panes, and yet I seem to feel you near tonight in this dim, quiet starlight on the plains. I thank you, Lord, that I am placed so well, that you have made my freedom so complete, that I am no slave of whistle, clock, and bell, or weak-eyed prisoner of wall and street. Just let me live my life as I've begun, and give me work that's open to the sky. Make me a partner of the wind and sun, and I won't ask a life that's soft or high. Let me be easy on the man that's down, and make me square and generous withal. I'm careless sometimes, Lord, when I'm in town, but never let them say I'm mean or small. Make me as big and open as the plains, as honest as the horse between my knees, clean as the wind that blows behind the reins, free as the hawk that circles down the breeze. Forgive me, Lord, when sometimes I forget. You understand the reasons that are hid. You know the many things that gall and fret. You know me better than my mother did. Just keep an eye on all that's done and said. Just write to me sometimes when I turn aside and guide me on the long, dim trail ahead that stretches upward to the great divide. End of chapter 15, part 2